This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street. From race to adventure, custom to naked, look no further than Renthal Street for handlebars, clip-ons, chains, and sprockets. We're back. Welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast, and we have a special show for you ahead of the Shark Grand Prix de France, where we'll chat about the prospects for round five, the launch of the Moto E World Championship with an exclusive interview with Executive Director Nicolas Goubert, discuss some MotoGP news, answer some of your questions and make our foolhardy predictions. I'm Adam Wheeler, writer and editor of On Track Off Road, and I'm joined by the man in the hat and the brains behind MotoMatters.com and the king of MotoGP tech, but without a coronation just yet. Uh, Mr. David Emmett, as well as the baritone of bike racing and a man who specializes in leaving his trash in other people's hire cars, Mr. <laughs> Neil Morrison. Um, Steve English has been a bit busy with the vocal cords on the world feed for the Catalan round of World SBK, but past, uh, just past last weekend, I should say. But the good news is that both Steve and Gordo will be recording a fresh Superbike show in a matter of hours. So watch out for that on your podcast streams. Really, they should have they should have Susan on as well. They should have uh, Neil's mum on because uh, uh, the, the lovely Susan Morrison was also in Barcelona for World Superbikes, and uh, I saw a very charming photograph of her um, uh, examining the Kawasaki's. And she was wearing a hat as well. But there you go. There you go. She, her hat was much more fetching than mine. I was working the Spanish Grand Prix in MXGP in Madrid over the weekend. And I half expected Susan to pop up somewhere in the in the stands around <laughs> in the motocross. So uh, yeah, maybe we should have a. You know, she can probably bring more wisdom them an insight to the podcast than than we do half of the time so ask her if she's available later neil yeah it wouldn't be hard would it <laughs> before we start uh, a reminder to go to the rental website you'll see jeffrey hurling cycling and street the kawasaki superbike team are rental runners and a myriad of components like chains chain wheels brake pads levers grips and of course handlebars upgrade your street bike with some of the best bits in the business all right guys so le Mans. Are we fans, Dave? Uh, um, uh, <laughs> this is the longest bit of prevarication you're going to hear for a long time. The, 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 the I mean, gosh, the track is a bit sort of odd, uh, uh, interesting. Uh, the, the atmosphere during the day is absolutely amazing. The atmosphere during the night, once the drinking and the, and the killing has started, is absolutely terrifying. Um, I mean, the, the, the reason that the, the, the two things are connected, basically. I mean, the reason that the, that, that there's so much to do at the circuit in the evening is because the city council made them, uh, made the circuit organizers keep everyone at the track rather than terrorizing the, uh, the city, which is the, what it used to do. So, um, yeah, but I mean, like, as an event, as an event during the day, there is so much to do. There, there, you know, it, it's amazing. As long as you don't mind, Sleeping and being uh, sort of murdered in your sleep. Well, I mean, this is why you know you don't go to sleep at Le Mans because if you do, then someone will drag you out of your tent and hung you up by your by your ankles and and flay you alive. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it is it is actually there's so much to do. They really do put on a fantastic show, um, and the racing is can be you know it, it can be can be interesting. And I, I I do like there there's bits of the track which I really like. I mean. Um, the bit, uh, sort of, uh, is it museum? I can't remember the, um, uh, so uh, past the chicane and then that long 
the 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 long first uh, right hander, which is which is off camber and goes downhill, is just glorious. Really, really difficult. And there's a few of those uh, bits and pieces um, which which make it interesting. Plus, it's got yes. the best. Uh, it's got the best uh, um, uh, corner name uh, on the on the circuit, which is Shimano Boeuf or the or, or Cow Street. Well, it's a little bit more glamorous than Garage. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Blue Garage, Green Garage. Green yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, yes, it is. It's it's amazing. Well, that corner you're talking about, Dave, I think was home to one of the most spectacular crashes we've seen in Grand Prix history. And history is a pertinent theme, of course, for this Grand Prix, uh, this weekend in particular. You know, was it Moto3? Neil, what year was it when we had 10 riders all falling in the same moment? Yeah, was that 16 or 17? Yeah. can't quite remember. But yeah, there was about 15 guys. And then if you think back to the early 90s, there was a 250 race where about half the field pretty much crashed out on oil over the space of three laps. So, yeah, there is occasion where it almost descends into farce at Le Mans. If we're talking about bizarre crashes and, you know, looking kind of retro, when was it a Bruno where Mick Doohan, was it with Frankie Keely had synchronized high sides? Uh, was that? Nürburgring, yeah, 1990. Okay. Yeah, I mean that was also something pretty special. But uh, yeah, I mean that corner you like there, Dave. Off camber, it's it's quite glorious, isn't it? It's sort of there are aspects of it, you know, with the Omega turn at Saxon Ring, it's just um, just seems to go on forever. And uh, you know, like you mentioned, it is a peculiar circuit, Le Mans. Um, you know, 4.2 kilometers. It must be one of the shortest on the World Championship calendar. Uh, shorter than Jerez, so that's saying something. Uh, we're going to have 27 laps, I think, of MotoGP on Sunday. So that's quite a significant amount. Nine right-handers uh, compared to just five on the left. That's obviously placing slightly more demand on one particular side of the tyre. In 2022, we had uh, Enea Bastianini uh, taking victory ahead of Jack Miller and Alessia Spargaro on the podium. And uh, Jorge Lorenzo has the most wins at the circuit with five. Uh, you know, there was a spell where Le Mans wasn't on the calendar, guys. I think it was after Alberto Puggi's crash, 95, mid-90s. Was that 95 or 94? 95. Yeah. So for a few years, the French Grand Prix bounced to Paul Ricard, but then returned, you know, I think in 2000, just at the turn of the century. I'd also recommend anybody curious about this track just to go onto YouTube and put Le Mans 500cc in because there's some spectacular footage from, you know, the 80s and the likes of Kenny Roberts and Freddie Spencer racing around there. Am I allowed to say Freddie Spencer without, you know, some sort of subconscious boo going on in the background? Yeah, as long as you're talking about his racing, uh, you're extremely encouraged to say Freddie Freddie Spencer, because he was, you know, one of possibly, probably the second most talented racer ever, you know, tied with Casey Stoner. But um, uh, yeah, it's once as it once it turns to the subject of judging where we have to not mention him anymore. Now, what's your feelings about Le Mans? Do you have a bit of a connection to the place? Is it somewhere you you anticipate going? Would you recommend anybody to go there? I mean, Dave's giving it a ring endorsement by, you know, highlighting homicide. But, um, <laughs> you know, what's your what's your opinion? Yeah, if you don't mind um, waking up with a, a dagger in your back, I, th- I guess it could be a, a pleasant place. I wouldn't say I have a connection to it. I think it's a it all depends on the weather, really. I mean, last year we had a wonderful weekend. We had glorious sunshine from Friday right the way through to Sunday. I think we had 110,000 people come through the gates on race day, which was a, a massive, massive attendance, obviously on the back of Quattararo and, and Zarco's current success. Um, and the, the the city is is very charming, quite pretty when uh, when it's nice weather, when the sun is shining. And the track isn't bad either, but when it's raining, when it's grey, when it's a bit miserable, it can 
feel like the end of the world. Um, so I would say it's very much weather dependent. And um, just on that, I see that uh, Sunday's forecast doesn't look too optimistic. Well, we're still, we're recording on Monday, so we'll give it the benefit of the doubt until we get to, well, maybe Saturday evening, <laughs> because things can change pretty quickly in that area, north of France. But what about the local guys? I mean, you just mentioned them them there, Neil. I mean, Fabio Quattararo, uh, things not going so smoothly for the former world champion at the moment. And Johan Zarco, you know, he's getting closer and closer of having that badge of being the man who never quite won a MotoGP race. Uh, any reason that we think those fortunes might turn around on this uh, kind of glorious stage where a lot of the French fans go crazy for these two? Um, I mean, for Quattararo, I wouldn't say there's a, a great deal of optimism. This has been a good track for, for Yamaha in the past when it's been dry. It's been a decent track for him as well. Um, he was sort of blunted by the Yamaha's lack of uh, ability to to overtake last year. He was he kind of had really good rhythm. In fact, there's been a couple of, of recent years where Quattararo's had like sensational rhythm through free practice, but when it's come to the race, he's got bogged down or shuffled back at the first corner, and uh, he hasn't really been able to to make decent progress through the field. Um, and going off what we saw at Hareth, um, I mean, it's uh, it's it's obviously a really tough time for Yamaha unless they qualify brilliantly um then it's it's going to be tough you would imagine he had a decent test at Hareth but um you know the the, the sort of test at Hareth just underlined the, the predicament that they're in you know when he's riding on a clear track everything seems to be pretty good when he's riding in a group it's the opposite so um yeah looking off recent history I mean Ducati have won three races on the on the bounce here um I think you know uh, the, the the track layout should should out uh, or should suit this new KTM really well um, and its late breaking capabilities. Going off what we saw at Hareth, um, so yeah, it could be it could be an interesting uh, coming together once again of uh, of the top Ducatis and and KTM. Yeah, that I I think that's very much going to be the case. If you think that uh, Jack Miller was on the podium last year. Um, uh, and he's just going really, really well at the moment. Uh, I, 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 you have to say he's going to be there. Uh, as for the local boys, yeah, I mean, Joan Zarco, like, Joan Zarco should be able to do really well, but he seems to struggle at his own race. He's never, you know, he's always sort of nearly there, but never quite. Uh, and as Neil said, right now, the Yamaha's MO is that, um, they have fantastic pace, but that fantastic pace is, uh, goes completely to waste because they're starting from, you know, the third or fourth row. So the, the, there's, there's not a lot of uh, room for optimism, to, for optimism, I fear, uh, at the moment. I am looking forward to the KTMs. I think the KTMs are going to be really, really, I think they're going to do well. I, I'm also sort of interested to see what the, Ducatis, or sorry, what the Hondas can do, because the Honda is, um, uh, they've had reasonable, uh, they've had some reasonable results there. They, they, you know, they, they, they can be, they can go around there quite well. Uh, I think, obviously, the, the, the problem is rear grip. Um, if they can find some grip, then they can be competitive. And if they can't, then, um, uh, then it's, then it won't be. And the, the, the question is going to be, you know, are they going to roll out this Kalex chassis that they tried in, uh, Jerez or not? Or are they going to, uh, I mean, it's obviously, it clearly needs more work or more development or at least more evaluation, but it doesn't really seem like they have a great deal, uh, to lose because they know exactly what they've got with the current chassis and the current chassis is basically just not good enough. 
Looking at the same long-term forecast that Neil did, I mean, temperatures are going to be significantly cooler, as you'd expect, compared to Hareth. Um, you know, lows of kind of 8, 9 degrees, highs of around 18, 19. You know, this could be the chilliest Grand Prix we've had so far this season, so maybe another reason to expect a performance differential from certain people on the grid. Uh, you know, I think also the level of grip that we find at Le Mans or the Bugatti circuit, to give it its, its official name, um, is going to be another determining factor. But outside of the main class, guys, of course, we have the launch of Moto E. Uh, now, of course, it's a very divisive kind of series. You know, people either extremely curious about it or, you know, really can live without it. But there's no arguing the fact that it's more significant this year. You know, after four years with Energica, a brand, I think, you know, it's fair to say we struggle to see many of their bikes on the road. Uh, Ducati are now the sole supplier of the machinery on the grid. Dave, I know you've been deep in, dipping into this subject significantly since you got invited to the launch of the uh, Ducati Moto E project. I think was it towards the end of last year uh, in Bologna. It was summer last year, so it was the middle of last year when they when they first basically first presented the bike and explained the philosophy behind it. And uh, like, I mean, it, it's a it's a beautiful bike. It looks like a race bike. You know, it looks like a Panigale, um, uh, and it looks like. They have sacrificed some performance uh, to lose some weight. Now, it's still a heavy bike. I think 225, 230 kilos, something like that. 225. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, you know, it, it's, it's still a heavy bike, but it's a little bit more manageable, and it's clearly a fantastic motorcycle. And um, uh, I think we mentioned this before at the Ducati launch show, which we did, that we sort of had a quick word with uh, with Chas Davis, and we'll hear from him later on. Uh, and Chas Davis says, you know, sorry to tell you this, guys, but it's a great motorcycle. So, yeah, looking forward, to, looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, Moto E is now significant. As we said, it's got world championship status, and you know the the fact that Ducati is there and all the, you know. It's such an iconic brand. It's such a relevant brand. I mean, it's world champion in both significant series, MotoGP and World Superbike. Uh, you know, I think it's harder to ignore the series now, isn't it, Neil? It's, um, you know, it's, it's got more rounds. I think it's got more credibility. I would say so, yeah. Obviously, the fact that it now has eight rounds, 16 races, um, and I think the rounds will, will come in a sort of back-to-back manner. It's pretty much from now until Mizano, I think, until at the end of the championship, which is pretty much every European race that we go to, there will be a Model E event there. Um, and obviously the World Championship status gives it a, an extra boost. And the fact that Ducati are involved, I think, you know, it should um, be a little bit more of interest to, to fans watching. I think it should be of interest as well to other manufacturers that are building motorcycles in the world currently because one of the one of the big names now has their their has dipped their toe in the water and is learning lots of really invaluable information about um how to construct electric vehicles um which you know will uh, will be significant in, in future years without question. Um so uh, I think, um, yeah, I think Ducati coming in really does make a make a big difference to the championship. Um, and as Dave said, you know, the, the bike that they have designed is quite impressive across the board. I mean, it's still quite heavy when you compare it to a World Superbike or to a MotoGP machine, 225 uh, kilos. Um, but I think, you know, they've made big gains in that department when you look at the, the first bike that was used in the Moto E World Cup in 2019, I think it was 40 kilos heavier. Um, you know, they've made decent advancements with the cooling of the bike as well. 
um, which basically reduces um, the amount of time that is needed to to charge the the, the bike. And um, yeah, I mean, the, the fact that there's going to be 18 uh, identical bikes on the grid should lend itself to, to close racing. And, you know, Moto E is always, whether you're a skeptic or, or whether you buy into it, you know, it's always delivered pretty good racing. I think that's, um, you know, that's probably its best selling point. Yeah, there are two connotations or implications around Moto E. Firstly, there's the, the technology, like you say, Neil, how that develops and how it will have a wider influence, perhaps even on the motorcycle industry. And the second thing is really as Moto E as a product. I mean, it's quite a pertinent subject at the moment when people are looking at MotoGP and how it's in transition, how it's trying to attract a bigger audience. You know, how is Moto E going to play a part? And, you know, we were lucky enough, Neil, you set up a call with Nicola Goubert, uh, formerly of Michelin, but, you know, the executive director of um, Moto E is a World Cup and now is a World Championship. Uh, he spoke to us online about these subjects and uh, here's, here's the interview. So we're here with Nicola Goubert, the executive director for the Moto E World Championship, as it now is in 2023. Um, Nicola, the first round of the 2023 championship is almost upon us. Um, I mean, do you have the feeling that we're entering into a new special kind of era for the championship? Obviously, we're a world championship now, um, not just a, a World Cup. Um, we've also got new manufacturer coming in. It seems like there's a lot of things to be excited about this year. Yes, yes, for sure. I mean, it's a big big step, you know, a big change compared to uh, to the first four-year period, I would say. Um, as you said, I mean, we, we're now a world championship. We have a lot more events, you know, 16 races altogether and and a new bike supplier. So um, big difference compared to four years ago, for sure. Nicola, the, uh, the championships sort of formed of eight rounds, like you said, 16 races. Uh, you know, we're visiting kind of a nice spread of tracks on the calendar. Is there any that you're particularly excited about seeing Moto E at this year? Um, you know what I like? The, the, the track I prefer is, um, is Philip Island, but unfortunately we're not going there. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> no, but uh, having said that, what I'm, what I'm really happy about this year is that we're going to tracks which are very different from each other. And uh, I'll take two examples, you know, for that. We're going to, to Germany, uh, to Saxon Ring, which is the shortest uh, track of the, uh, the season. And we're going as well to the longest one with Silverstone in UK. So a very high speed, very long uh, track compared to uh, a very slow speed and a very short track. So that's uh, a lot of difference. And um, that, that's good, you know, to, to go to very varied, to go to very varied places. Nicola, whenever um, you were speaking with Ducati before they started working on their, their Moto E machine for this year, um, I think you at Dorna gave Ducati a brief what you wanted from them in terms of the specifications yes. of their bike and, and what you kind of expected for them to make this an interesting and uh, and watchable championship. Can you maybe talk to us about what you you asked Ducati? Yeah, basically there, there were three three different uh, items. You know, we, we said to them that we were happy about the format of the races we've had so far. Um, we had more or less 15 minute races and we wanted to continue with that, but we wanted to make sure that we could go to any of the tracks used by the MotoGP in the in MotoGP championship. And whatever the weather was, whether it was raining, whether it was sunny, whether the temperature was low or high, 
we want you to be able to do basically a 15 minutes uh, race. So that was the first point. Second point was regarding the, uh, the lap times. Uh, we said to them, basically, we don't have a lot of uh, expectation on that. We want to be competitive with Moto3. Already with Energica, you know, in, uh, in Austria, for example, we're faster than, uh, than Moto3. So we just said to them, hey, we want to be competitive um, as, as often as possible. And, and honestly speaking, we're not worried because they, we knew they were going to design a bike especially for track use. Um, so we, we knew they were going to achieve it. And then the third point, the most important, and we didn't know exactly what to expect was we, we, we asked them to build the um, lightest bike possible because we all know that uh, electric mobility, I mean, one of the uh, weak points is, is basically the weight of the vehicles, whether it's a car or, or bike. And of course, it's more crucial uh, even on the bike. And we knew that there, there was a point we wanted to improve the most. So we asked them to, to build the lightest bike possible. And, uh, and we're very happy you know, with the results because it came came with a 225 kilogram bike, so which is close to 40 kilograms lighter than four years ago, um, with uh, more or less same, same power. As I said before, you know, wanted more or less same lap time. I mean, it would be faster because it's a, it's a uh, bike made for the, for the track, but the, the weight is very impressive. Nicola, what's it been like to work? Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, just, just to, to, to finish on that, you know, two to five kilograms, if you compare to the, the weight at the start of a stint with the, of the uh, endurance bikes, you know, the bikes they use in the eight hours of Suzuka or Le Mans, 24 hours of Le Mans, they must be, you know, around 200 kilograms. So we're not, I mean, it's not night and days anymore. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> That's okay. Now, ask for been like to work with you uh, you know building this new phase of the project um can you just tell us a little bit i mean i think and passion um and technology so oh did i cut out there i'm saying what's it been like to work with jacati i mean what's it been you know people associate the brand with motorcycling with passion um how's how's that been no it's it's been it's been very great i mean i i knew a few of them from the past and uh, and uh, what i really appreciate is that they were very open you know to discuss the uh, what they were going to the solutions they were going to come up with so that's been uh, very very nice and of course they have a lot of experience you know in the racing field uh, they, they put a lot of resources behind the project so um, it's been um, it's been very good i mean i really enjoy working with these guys would it be fair to say, Nicola, that we can expect, you know, Ducati is obviously a, a globally recognized name for, for motorcycles. Um, would it be fair to expect that, you know, this change can can maybe take Moto E to the next level, just in terms of having a globally recognized brand as the, the, the kind of sole supplier of the bike and how that could maybe uh, excite other uh, brands in motorcycling to, to get behind yes. it? I hope it will happen. You know, to, to be honest with you, I was very happy with the level we reached with uh, with Energica, the previous bike provider, in terms of the show we put up on the on the track, because I think the races were really entertaining. 
uh, but but it was very difficult to attract the attention of people. Uh, and and having a very famous brand like Ducati for sure will help. I mean, we've seen already that uh, uh, you know we we organize an event. As you know, we launched the uh, the, the World Championship in in Rome uh, last March, and we've seen already that uh, it triggered interest. You know, from uh, from a lot of people, from uh, a lot more people than before, and and for sure that's uh, due in, in in part to the, um, the the brand name of Ducati. For sure. So let's let's hope it will, uh, will continue, and we'll we'll see to which level you know we, we can reach, but we'll continue pushing for sure. I know you're not a marketing expert, but is there anything you feel you know Motor E could be doing now or in the coming couple of years to to boost the championship even more? I think MotoGP itself is is looking at ways to increase popularity, and um, then Moto yeah. E, I guess, is the subdivision of that. Yes, I mean, there are a lot of things you can do. Um, the, the, the first one is to, to increase our visibility by having more events. And, you know, it's what we've been doing for the last four, four years. You know, we started with four events and six races. We're going to be up to eight events and 16 races. And, uh, and, and, and we'll continue growing in that aspect. Of course, you have... To talk about a series, you have to have content, and you make content uh, most of the time. I mean, the easiest place to make content is on a racetrack, uh, with uh, videos of the what's happening on the track. So that that's one way. After, yeah, I mean, you, you have to make sure that uh, you have to try to trigger interest in people, um, and uh, and of course, the best tool is the is the tv is the broadcasting of the, of the tv so we'll have the same kind of broadcasting uh as last year meaning that uh, you know we'll we'll transmit the qualifying and uh, into races but what we have to do is to attract the uh tvs you know to make sure that the people who've got the rights to transmit the races are actually going to do it live most of the time and um, and that they're going to help you know promoting the the races and um, we'll see what happens so so far people have been a little bit uh, shy I would say uh, doing that because it was it was completely new uh, but for sure with uh, Ducati being there most of these guys are really passionate about racing. They know the brand. They will they will see straight away that there is technology behind it. And um, once you know, one step is to trigger the interest of all the commentators, all the journalists, of course, in place as well, which are who are coming to the track. And uh, if we manage to make them interested in what we're doing, uh, for sure, that's going to be a very big help. Obviously, it's not just been Ducati that have been busy during the, the winter months, Nicola. We've seen, um, or I, I believe there have been quite um, a lot of advancements from Enel in terms of the charging capabilities of the machines. Also, um, I heard Michelin have said something like Moto E for them is like the laboratory to kind of try and develop some sustainable projects. Do you think that, that is a, that's a, it's a good sort of selling point to companies looking to get involved in the series? 
Yes, I mean for sure. You know, famous brands like uh, like Enel and, uh, and Michelin using the, the platform, which is a motor platform, to develop uh, more sustainable products. That that's really good for us as well because something we we don't we don't speak maybe too often or often enough. I don't know is uh, how much efforts we want we, we put behind the scenes to make the series as sustainable as possible. And when I say we is, of course, not only Donna, but with all the, um, the stakeholders, you know, all the, uh, the people involved. And uh, that, that, that's a very important point, but uh, we want to make a great show and being sure we, we are as sustainable as possible. And uh, the fact that um, NL and, uh, and Michelin are very much involved in doing that is going to be um, helpful for us as well. Um, when it comes back to the visibility of the series, Nicola, I mean, uh, riders and rider names, this is one way to boost that. But I'm interested in to know how you see MotoE. Do you want it to be a series that has very much its own sporting credibility? So you want young athletes who are trying to excel at being the best electric motorcycle races in the world? Or would you prefer some some old retired Grand Prix winners that come in and you know help boost things up? I mean, the likes of say Jorge Lorenzo. What, how do you see it? Well, sure. You know, if we had a very big name like uh, Jorge, like we had in the past with City Chipernao, actually, um, it brings uh, viewers. But honestly speaking, if I look at the midterm. I think it's more, um, I think in a way it's better for the series to, to attract young riders wanting to go up the scale in the, uh, in the motorsport, in the two motorsport series to be, to be able afterwards to have a ride in Moto2 and then eventually in MotoGP. Um, to have a bit of both is, um, is the best. But I would say most of them, it's, it's the way things are going, you know, from 2019. We have more and more young riders trying to be more visible because they know that all the team managers for Moto3, Moto2 are, are going to watch uh, Moto E races. And uh, if they uh, make a good job uh, during uh, Moto E, they might get a, a ride in, uh, in Moto2. And, uh, you know, we've had uh, people like um, uh, Hector Garzo, uh, who did that. Unfortunately, it didn't go so well for him in Moto2, but maybe one day he will, he will go back. Um, we had Fermin Aldeguer, who is doing very well in Moto2. He was with us uh, as well. And, um, and we have a bunch of young guys, you know, with, with us. And their dream is to stay with a couple of years and then to jump into Moto2. And that... Honestly speaking, that would be the best for me is to be recognized as a, um, as a, how do you say? Um, like a stepping stone or yes. a foundation? Yeah. Foundation to, to, to continue, you know, with their career in, uh, in, in two-way racing. But I'm pleased as well to have people like, uh, uh, like Tito Rabat uh, coming with us because for sure he's got, uh, I mean, he's a well-known guy. Uh, so it will bring attention of, of people. But it's, it's kind of difficult, you know, for these riders because the young guys who are there, and it's a comment uh, that City made to me uh, 
you know three or four races in uh, after having done um, a couple of races in, uh, in in 2019 he said to me one of the objective of these young young guys is only to beat me and they're ready to to take a lot of risks to do that and uh, well maybe my time has gone you know I've I'd rather not do that <laughs> Nicola, you mentioned obviously the advancements um, of of the weight of the bikes. I think forty uh, forty kilograms less than back in twenty nineteen when the series first started uh, for the bikes this year. Um, obviously, charging capacity. I think the bikes can be eighty percent charged in 40, 45 minutes for this year, which is quite a, a big advancement. I mean, yeah. these are these are fairly significant gains. Are we likely to see this kind of progress continue as uh, the series keeps evolving? Um, you know, regarding the charge, actually, the, the time you need to charge the bikes is more or less the same. Because the energy car was, uh, was uh, fast as well to charge, but the big difference is that because the, the bike is equipped with a liquid, liquid cooled system, you don't have to wait for the battery temp temperature to have gone down before you charge it. So before, you know, after each session, we had to wait one hour for the battery to cool down before starting charging it. And at the end of the charge, we had to wait another hour before going back to the track. So basically we had to have three hours between two sessions. With this one, we still need about an hour to charge the bike, but we, you can charge just after the end of the session and you can charge until just before the next session. So you need only one. That's a huge difference. Um, not that interesting if you look at the schedule of the race weekend, because you know we always have three or four hours between two sessions. But in case something happens, you know, in case there is a red flag, in case we want to change, there's a last minute change in the in the schedule, and and we have to react more quickly, we'll be able to do it and we will not lose, you know, the possibility to go on track. So and another good, very big advantage is during the winter test. During the weekend test, we could do six sessions a day with this one. Uh, when we started, we could do only three. So that's very, very big advantage. Regarding the second part of your question, whether or not we will see we will see continuing um, progress, improvements, you know, in terms of um, charging speed and uh, weight, bike weight, definitely yes. Whether or not we will gain forty kilograms. I cannot commit to that, but for sure we will get some. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's closer to 40 than to 20. Or if it's not four years, it will be five years. But just a week ago, Cattle, uh, who is just uh, one of the biggest battery makers, made a, an incredible announcement saying that they had found a way to make uh, battery which are um, um, which have doubled the um, energy density which is basically the way you measure the energy you can put in one kilogram of battery so i don't know if that type of battery could be good for for our bike because we need a lot of power density as well but you know it's one step a huge step that these guys have done saying they could use that on electric bikes on electric small planes so you know things are changing very quickly 
Um, and, and for sure, we'll see this trend will continue with the, with the number of people of research done around the world in the battery field, we're going to benefit from it. You know, we'll not be the first one because the market for bike is really small, uh, but we'll not be far behind. Yeah, that's interesting. And same for, awesome. for um, charging time. You know, you, 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 could, you can read that the electric cars are, now you've got more and more power. You know, the, the, they talk about one kilowatt power, two, 200 kilowatt, 300 kilowatt power to charge your, your battery. Our battery is 18 kilowatt hour. So if you have 100 kilowatt charge, you could charge it in 12 minutes, theoretically. If you use 300 kilowatt charge, you could charge it in four minutes. Um, it's, not, <laughs> it's not completely possible with technology we have, but people are starting talking about that. Uh, so it means the fewest time it will be possible. You know, uh, Tesla started, and it's not the only one, but uh, to launch the uh, uh, truck, electric truck. You're going to tell me, hey, what the relation between electric truck and uh, electric racing bike. In electric truck, what is very important is the speed at which you're going to recharge the huge battery they have. So for sure, the, the improvement they're going to make on that, we're going to benefit from it. Yeah. So it's I'm, I'm convinced in ten years time, it will our battery will be charged in less than ten minutes, for sure. Yeah, I think a lot of people have looked at the the battery charge time as maybe one of the big restrictive things when they think about electric mobility. But in in a way, you know, for us, as I said earlier, it's not a big thing because we don't need to charge so quickly. And if you think about it. I, I don't I don't agree with it on the road either. You know, when I was a kid, the the petrol my uh, my uh, dad's car we needed to fill it up every 250 k's every 300 k's was not a big deal because there were petrol stations every corner. Okay, so if you think that one day there will be charging station everywhere, and if you can charge reasonably quickly. I mean, to make 300 kilometers is good enough. Especially as a speed, we can we can drive now, or we cannot drive. <laughs> Absolutely. Just one final question for me, Nicola, and then I'll hand over to Adam. But who's going to win this year? We've obviously had a test at Jerez. We've had a test in Barcelona. We've got a picture of who's going to be, I think, maybe at the front um, this weekend at Le Mans. What's your opinion? I think we have, from what we've seen, you know, I, there's a lot of these guys I don't know. I mean, I've seen only twice, once in the wet, in very specific conditions, and only once in the dry. Uh, but for sure, there are about five guys who seem to be faster than the others. You know, the, the, I mean, three we already have in the, had in the series, like, uh, of course, Eric Granado, Jordi, um, Matteo Ferrari, even more than three, because uh, Mattia, Casales, uh, Danone will be fast. We've got five, five or six uh, who can uh, who can win races for sure. Um, a few of them can win the championship or have already won the championship. And then we have newcomers who are very, very fast as well. 
Um, so it's going to be very open. Um, what, the good thing about this year is that with 16 races, you know, it's going to be kind of a long championship, even if the period of time will be uh, quite uh, limited, but the number of races will make it quite a, a long championship. So you'll be allowed to make mistakes and still keep a good keep, keep a good chance to win the championship. So if, yeah, honestly speaking, I cannot give you, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who's going to win it, but the very positive point is that we have many people being in a position to win it, you know, and, and it's what we want, really. Uh, lastly, for me, Nicola, how significant is it that the championship launches this year in the 75th year of the World Championship, the thousandth GP, um, and of course at Le Mans, which is one of the, the most historic venues on the calendar? It's all quite, it's worked out quite nicely, hasn't it? Yes, yes. And, and you know, something else which is very nice is that we're going to be at all the European weekends, all the European MotoGP events from Le Mans to Misano consecutively. So we're not missing any of the European events. And that's for me, for you know what we talked about to try to make this series more visible is very important because when you have a series like, like, like when we were in the past, you know, with only a few events scattered through the year, not only people don't know you, but even with people who have seen one of your races, they really have to look for the information to know where you, when you're going to be on again. So this time being all, every time uh, with MotoGP in Europe, you know, from Le Mans to Misano, I think is a very big advantage. Fantastic. How much advantage, I don't know, but it's positive. <laughs> <laughs> Well, after speaking to you, Nicola, I can't wait to get this weekend started. Um, Moto E coming back for its fifth season and uh, yeah, promises to be, well, it is going to be bigger and uh, better than ever. Nicola, thanks so much for your time and thanks for coming on the Paddock Pass podcast. Thanks to you guys and see you uh, probably in the month. Yeah, thanks to Nicola Gobert there for making time for us. Uh, a good talk. And uh, Neil, you're prepped, to, of course, to be adding your voice to Moto E this year. Uh, you know, just... A quick question, more enthused about it this time. I mean, we don't, the, I, the rider entry list is not significantly different, but, you know, like you say, there are factors there that, you know, will create more interest around this series. Yeah, I think uh, more enthused this year, uh, definitely. Uh, a little apprehensive about the workload on Saturday. I mean, looking at that schedule, uh, <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be pretty ropey. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to, to join you boys for the, uh, the note show on Saturday evenings because I'm pretty sure I'll be spent by the end of that day. But, um, yeah, no, definitely. I think, uh, more enthused. It, it feels like a, you know, Moto E's entering into a new era. And I did get the impression commenting on the series back in 2020, 2021, that maybe, um, any kind of interest or, or, yeah, um, attention on the on the series had dwindled somewhat, but obviously um, any kind of updates that Energica um, had intended to to bring were, I think, put on ice because of the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, and um, yeah, maybe the the sort of advancements we saw during the the four years of their term were were affected by that somewhat. So um, so yeah, now that Ducati are in, I'm hopeful that that we do see a bit more attention towards the the series. Um, and, you know, Le Mans in the last couple of years has hosted some pretty, pretty exciting racing. So I'm hopeful of the same. 
Dave, he's getting his excuses in early for the uh, Paddock um, past podcast note show absence. Um, but right now we'll get our excuses in just to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we'll hear from Chaz Davis and answer some of your questions. Renthal Street, Chain and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Okay, welcome back. Just to wrap up the subject of Moto E and a new era for this particular series, um, the Ducati link, of course, means that some star names are involved. Uh, we spoke with former Supersport World Champ and Serial World Superbike race winner Chaz Davis at the MotoGP launch in Italy earlier this year, and he uh, he basically told us that he'd been doing some testing, had been, you know, as you mentioned, Dave, earlier on the podcast, deeply involved in the Moto E project. So, Neil, you caught up with him last weekend at the Superbike round, and uh, here is what he had to say to you. They're really not starting from zero, even if it's a completely new yeah. thing to them. It's there's so much things that are relevant from what they know already. Um, but yeah, the, the, the other the variables that I guess they that is new to them is the weight of the bike. Um, that is how how do you how do you sort of basically how how do you build the best race bike with that kind of weight? Yeah, stop the try and work with front lock and stuff like that which is present um, and yeah I guess they're in the hands of technology a little bit with that like when the, the weight comes down battery power and you've got battery uh, life needs to go up sort of thing so sure. that'll be that's the that's the long game yeah, yeah. Sure. is that something that I guess coming from career in super bikes that you you notice straight away like i think it's what 225 kilos which is obviously yeah. a, a lot heavier than yeah. what anything that you're used to yeah yeah, yeah definitely to be honest not you don't notice it where you think you notice it so chucking the bike around from left to right and i started at magello in it and there's no okay. place where you really throw around from left to right or right to left as much as magello yeah. and that wasn't a big deal to me yes you feel the weight but you do the technique is everything and I think you do so much work with the throttle to get the bike to change direction that okay. it doesn't feel like you're throwing around 55 kilo more than the World Superbike. It's, right. you know, it's all, you do that much of the work with, with the throttle anyway. Yeah. What does, what is different is the braking area. There's nothing you can do about that. You know, just trying to stop 225 kilo is, is very different to stopping 170. Yeah. Um, and also the tyre factor as well, that's new to me, Michelin's, but the basically the stopping distance is quite similar to Superbike, and even if you're travelling more at sort of super sport speeds, um, within a bit, I don't know exactly, but wouldn't be too far away. So that, that stopping distance is something that, that was more noticeable than the actual chucking it around, which, and then the way the bike stops as well, it's obviously very difficult to lift the rear on a motor e-bike right. there's, there's a bit too much weight there for that and you get the front lock before you're ever going to lift the rear you might get a small kick over a bump from the rear um, over a bump and, and whatnot and get some daylight under the rear wheel but still that's difficult like, the, the front will give way which is a Michelin thing anyway from what I understand um, and with when you're trying to stop that amount of weight I think that's the that's probably going to be the biggest challenge I guess for the riders this year is how to how to load the tyre in the right way to not to not make it lock and, and not sort of push it um, in, in that way. 
So Chaz Davis, as we mentioned, involved in Moto E starting this weekend at Le Mans. Guys, let's just bounce back to MotoGP for a moment because there are a couple of news subjects to go through. I think our RNF Unlocked podcast episode, Neil, could be quite spicy this weekend. Uh, Miguel Oliveira out, uh, confirmed with that left shoulder injury, uh, a displacement or a dislocation. I, I can't remember the exact wording of the press release. But then also Raul Fernandez has been under the surgeon's knife um, for with an arm pump operation in Madrid this week. So he's going to be in a race against time to try and be fully fit for Le Mans. Uh, it's it's kind of dire times really isn't it for the Aprilia satellite team yeah a little bit um you really do feel for Miguel Oliveira who's just had absolutely no luck this year um you know I think he's just participated in three feature races in MotoGP and he's been taken out of two of them um and he's walked away with with, with pretty substantial injuries in both both occasions there are a few uh complications to the uh the shoulder that he injured at uh, Hareth, he obviously dislocated the le- left shoulder but they then found i think a fracture in the humerus the the kind of upper arm bone um as well as some um ligament injuries as well so it does sound like that's going to be a real uh handicap for miguel you know if he's obviously missing Le Mans, but even if he does come back from Mugello, you'd have to imagine he's going to be well well below um, peak physical fitness so yeah shame for them and then Ralph Fernandez has been kind of complaining about arm pump issues um, right from the start of the season I think they had to change his leathers uh, in Argentina because of some of the issues he was having there um, or he was having at the first race weekend so yeah um, uh, you know Raul will be back after his arm pump surgery and uh, Lorenzo Salvadori stepping in for uh, for Oliveira so yeah tough times unfortunately for RNF. Yeah, I mean, Fernandez should be fine because, uh, I mean, he, he won't be 100%, but he's going to be very close to 100% because they, um, it's a, well, apart from the insanity of a of arm pump surgery, it is relatively straightforward uh, operation. Uh, it heals quite quickly. He should be able to ride. Uh, I think it's much more concerning the injury to uh, Miguel Oliveira. There's talk of him having labrum damage, and the labrum is basically the, the the chunk of cartilage which holds your the the socket of your humerus of your uh, arm bone in place. Um, and if that if that is damaged uh, cartilage heals very very slowly um if you need surgery on it it'll be it'll take a long time to heal if he doesn't it'll still take quite a long time to heal the advantage is that uh, you know it is basically he has three weeks off after uh, after Le Mans so he does have a, a time to get better but then it's Mugello and Mugello is some track and after that yeah. is Saxon Ring you know an anti-clockwise yeah. track where he's going left all the time so not not ideal. And then straight after straight after that is Assen. So it's three in a row. Uh, you know, if you're not kind of fit for the beginning of the Mugello streak, then you're in trouble, really. But uh, you know, shoulders. I mean, it has to be one of the most complex joints of, of the human body. Um, I've seen enough motocross injuries over the years just to know that you know if you don't have the strength or mobility on that, then you're going to be struggling. So I hope you know Miguel Oliveira's injury is not as serious as it sounds um, anatomically but it you know it sounds pretty tough especially the damage to the humerus I'm sure Mark Marquez can give him plenty of uh, knowledge and feedback about that one yeah and they've gone against uh, surgery so um, they're just going to try and let it heal naturally Um, so again you know this could take this could take a long time so yeah I'm kind of afraid to say that we probably won't see the best of Miguel until the the second half of the season. Mark Marquez, I just mentioned him. He's still TBC for the Grand Prix, Dave, uh, but he's currently the most successful rider in the MotoGP class at Le Mans with three victories. 
Uh, he's scheduled to appear in the, the official press conference on Thursday. I mean, that doesn't really mean much at all in terms of whether he's going to turn up. There's still the whole FIM sanctioning mess, uh, you know, around his name. I guess they're waiting for him to turn up before there's some sort of adjudication. I don't know. I did spy him at the motocross, actually, at the weekend. It was good to see him at the MXGP along with Alex. And uh, I think it was actually the first motocross um, world championship round he's turned up to in quite a while. He grew up close to Belle Pudge and he was talking about memories of seeing Stefan Everts and Mikel Bichon racing. But uh, that's the first time Mark actually made it to a GP. But uh, yeah, whether he makes it to Le Mans is another question. Yeah, I. Uh, it's an, it really well. It, it's an interesting one. I think his uh, injury, you know, the, the the broken bone in his in his hand should be healed enough for him to be able to race. Uh, the FIM continue to be a complete, complete. It continues to be a complete debacle. I mean, why why the FIM MotoGP Court of Appeal can't hear this appeal? Um, you know. Why it hasn't already been been heard is 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 just a mystery. Uh, I think, off the top of my head, I haven't checked. Um, I need to go back and check the over the um, the regulations. But I think there's something in there about the uh, appeals have to be heard within six weeks of the original date. Uh, we're getting very very close to that six weeks. Um, it's it, it's just insane that it ha- that it hasn't been heard. I mean, it it just really it needs to be put to bed. It needs to be it it needs to be sort of sorted out and cleared up because it's um yeah it, it's no good um also not surprised to see mark marquez at uh Moto gp because as we know uh just about every single Moto gp uh, ride, sorry yes mxgp uh, every single Moto gp rider is basically uh someone who regrets their uh, uh regrets they were never good enough for mxgp so um <laughs> yeah it's uh um i'd rather suspect it might be the same uh, the, the 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 opposite for uh, for mxgp riders as well but uh yeah Certainly for the money, I suspect, in some some cause. But the elite are always going to be better off. Uh, Neil, for, for fear of stating the bleeding obvious, uh, Honda really could do with Mark in Le Mans, couldn't they? Um, I mean, he's not going to attempt the Grand Prix unless he's in a, a reasonable state of fitness. Uh, he clearly wasn't in that particular sphere uh, for Hareth. Now it looks like he's going to be a bit closer. But, um, you know, it was was a dire time for, for the Honda contingent in Spain. Yeah, it was horrible. Um, I mean, Joanne Mears season so far has just been I don't think any of us had high expectations but it's it's descended into disaster territory within four weekends it's been it's been really quite ugly to watch um, and you just feel for the guy um, I would say that the rain might offer them a bit of a let up um, especially Alex Rins because in the past he has gone pretty well at Le Mans in the rain I think um, you know he's crashed out of some really promising positions in uh, in previous years Um Back in 2020, I think he was uh, he was on for a really good result before he uh, before he binned it, um, and I think the same could be said in 2021 after the bike swap. He crashed when he was in a podium position, so um, you know maybe that could play into his favour um, and play into his hands um, over the over the weekend. But yeah, they, you know the sooner Mark can come back, the better because any of the any of the sort of little sparkles of, uh, of of optimism that we saw first from his performance on the Saturday in Portimao and then from Rins' performance in Koto was uh, extinguished rapidly at Hareth. 
I think last year Alex Rins tried to do his own form of motocross going through the chicane, um, you know, into turn three there. It was uh, pretty gnarly, that particular accident. Uh, Le Mans also, of course, distinct for being the 1000th GP. And, um, you know, Giacomo Agostini apparently is going to have a bike collection there. In garden number one near the MotoGP VIP village, there'll be a collection of motorcycles that he not only raced, but also managed. So that would be quite interesting to check out. Um, Dave, how was it working at GP number one? Do you remember all that time ago? <laughs> Not that old. Um, uh, no, I mean, you know, 1949, 1949 is, uh, is, is, is a, a little before my time. Uh, I mean, even, uh, my mum was only five at the time. So, um, yes, no, um, it, it's, if you think about it, it has, how the sport has changed is just astonishing. You know, the first GPs were all, well, pretty much all held on public roads um you know death was common uh it was an accepted part of the sport safety was um there was you know no no attention paid to safety whatsoever um the series there wasn't a single promoter each grand prix organized itself and there was a a long and rich history of um race promoters um holding i mean basically what you had to do was uh turn up and uh well you know uh, turn up for practice qualify uh race and then after the race you had to queue up to get your money to get your start money um and uh there was a long and rich history of promoters uh absconding just before the end of the race <laughs> so with the, with the entire weekend's takings um and not paying out the uh, not paying out the riders so yeah it was it, it's it's such a totally different sport the bikes are different the riders are different it, you know every, everything's different now it, everything is so professional there's so much focus on on safety and there's so much focus the the the, the riders the teams everyone is, is is treated an awful lot better than they were in the past yeah, the 1949 season is is quite interesting just in its its length, and I think this was quite common uh, in the 50s as well. We had six just six rounds that season. We started uh, in the middle of June on the Isle of Man uh, at the TT, uh, and then we finished. I think at the start of September, the fourth of September was the the sixth and final round of that season. So can you imagine that cramming everything into uh, just over two months? Um, I mean, that's an awful lot of uh, idle talk to be doing during the off season. You would say. <laughs> well yeah no podcasting going on then but you know the races were like three hours long i mean it was a high attrition rate not only for accidents and you know whatever else but also just machine failures and everything like that i think if you look in the big red book that we usually default to for statistical information then uh you know there were not too many finishes of that championship but uh dave like you say how things have developed but then if you look at the bikes in the 50s with a dustbin or the kind of rocket ship fairings aerodynamics you know took started to eat its way into motorcycle racing quite early on and now it's more prominent than ever uh, yes i mean in fact the, the this this sort of repeating cycle through um uh through grand prix history of uh, technology getting out of control as uh, factories get into a spending war and people sort of pulling out you know the original aerodynamics the uh, the, the the dustbin fairings were banned because there was a really good well i mean uh, i think it was uh, motor gutsy were very good and understand understood what they were doing and everyone basically just tried to copy their fairing and ended up being blown into walls and stuff which was uh, not a good look um we got into the 
fantastic era of um uh, you know wild engineering of five cylinder 125s and uh 50cc twins with with i think 12 or 14 gears um which caused the FIM to you know clamp down just because it was getting it was getting way too expensive to to, to build all of these sadly we lost some fan, amazing machines you know Moto Guzzi's V8 which is it's still just a spectacular uh, machine. Honda's um, uh, Honda's six cylinder two fifty, I think. Um, which, if you ever hear it, just sounds. I mean, it sounds like God. It's just astonishing. So yeah, there was a, a lot to. We've lost a lot, but we gained a lot as well. It meant you got into this engineering war where there was only really one uh, one factory who could afford to to do all the engineering, and they clamped down on the rules and changed that, and then. Um, uh, sort of the, the, the same thing happens. It, it, it just repeats over and over, and we're seeing it again with aerodynamics. You know, Ducati uh, understand aerodynamics. KTM seems to understand aerodynamics and uh, Aprilia to a certain extent as well because they've hired the knowledge. And uh, we're we're seeing Yamaha and Honda get left behind. Yeah, after the initial kind of British supremacy in World Championship history, the Italian manufacturers really had an imprint on the rest of the Grand Prix records, and they still do to this day. Um, another Italian we're going to be counting on for the Grand Prix this weekend, Danilo Petrucci, back once more making another wildcard appearance um, on a different motorcycle, not a Suzuki this time. And, of course, a former winner in Le Mans, uh, when we talked about some of that kind of uh, unfriendly climate, then Petrucci excelled in 2020 to win. Neil, thoughts on Petrox being back? Uh, you know, he's bounced from Dakar to AMA, well, you know, Moto America, currently in World Superbike, and now, you know, being filled, filling in again in, in Grand Prix racing. Uh, we'll certainly welcome his character back. Uh, you know, is there any kind of feeling that he could do a job here? Uh, I think if you had to pick... One track that wasn't Mugello that Petrucci could do a job at, it would be it would be Le Mans. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the win in 2020 in the rain. Um, the two years prior to that, he had uh, podiums in the dry. I think he finished second in 18. He uh, was third in 19. Um, and even in that pretty rubbish final MotoGP season, uh, when he was riding for Tech 3 KTM, he finished fifth in, in, in Le Mans. So, uh, you know, he has a, a really good track record here. As we mentioned, weather isn't going to be great. Um, but we did see last year just the, 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 how difficult it is to jump in from a superbike class uh, for one single GP and um, try to get the hang of a MotoGP machine, uh, which, you know, has changed rapidly over the last two or three seasons um, to try and take everything new in over a race weekend. Um, he will be jumping back on the Ducati, which obviously he has, uh, he has experience of. He'll be in the factory team alongside Pecco Bagnai because Nea Bastianini's uh, left shoulder uh, is still in a in a bad way. Sorry, right shoulder, I should say, um, is still in a bad way. Um, so at least there is that. Expecting anything from a substitute rider in MotoGP now, I think, is a, a massive ask, even more so than it was in, in years gone by. Um, but if it's raining and there's some strange conditions, you know, maybe he could... He could pull the top 10 out of the hat, maybe maybe even better, I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, it will be good to see Petrucci back. He's obviously one of the great characters of our, of our sport. It'll be worth it for the sound bites alone, never mind the results. But um, at the end of every show, we usually kind of ask you guys for feedback or any questions, particularly on the Paddock Pass podcast, notes productions, which we do every day from the Grand Prix events. Uh, we've got a couple here to go through. Uh, Dave, first of all, uh, Dustin Keeley or Kelly uh, through Patreon asks, do we think Suzuki would have left MotoGP if it had anything like the popularity of Formula One? 
Um, I, it's certainly a very good question. Um, I, it is my impression that Suzuki's decision to withdraw had very little to do with the popularity of the sport. It's much more about their own particular struggles and focus on, you know, the, the automotive sector. They are in the middle of this massive transition to, um, uh, electric vehicles. Um, that focus, that sort of, you know, focus on cost is, is the reason they pulled out of racing. Cause they've, you know, they didn't just pull out of MotoGP. They pulled out of, um, uh, and endurance racing they haven't really been involved in any form of racing so it's more that Suzuki lack a commitment to racing rather than the lack of success in a specific uh, uh, branch of sport Neil uh, Paul Lang asks if we as media and pundits were completely wrong about KTM and their chances for 2023 MotoGP glory or did the Austrians just make this miraculous rapid turnaround uh, I was certainly wrong yeah I uh, I think I said in the preseason preview show that um Maybe they would be the surprise of the year in a negative way because what I had seen and a few things that I'd heard as well through preseason didn't indicate that they would be doing anything like they are doing currently. Um, you viewed one way the the, the guys Miller, uh, Espargaro, and Binder were 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 testing too many things. There was no. Um, it, it seemed like they were almost being overwhelmed to an extent um, with the, the amount of, of new parts that they were having to test. Um, but obviously there was a method in the, the kind of perceived madness at the time. Um, KTM knew that um, they had to get through all of that during the, the, the two preseason tests. And, um, you know, by the time they got to the first round, they would have a very clear understanding of, of what parts worked best. Um, and, you know, as Dave said on, on our last show, they, they have a clear identity now in, in kind of their working method and the bike as well. It has a very clear identity. It has very clear um, uh, advantages and strong points. And, you know, it has two riders now that can really take advantage of those. Um and, you know, when Paul Espargaro comes back, you would say there's going to be three riders that can really take advantage of the bike's strong points. So, yes, I was massively wrong. I hold my hands up and uh, and admit that. Not for the first time. You're a big man, Neil, in more ways than one. Uh, lastly, Gurgly Demeter, I'm so sorry if I pronounced that wrong, asked, Dave, this one for you, perhaps, if, um, you know, Freddie Spencer and Cohen race direction, I mean, is that, can they be removed from their roles? I mean, they're kind of employment status if you like or their positions is that fixed in stone by the fim or is it something more democratic uh what's your your opinion or your answer to that one my understanding is they are appointed by the fim um usually what happens is they're appointed by the fi the fim especially with race stewards they're appointed by the fim but dawn on earth to recommend they put forward certain names and say we think that these people are capable of doing the job um i think it's fairly clear that the fim ha or that you know freddie spencer has not been proven to be capable up to doing this job um you know still a fantastic racer still uh one of the greatest racers in history um no question of that but he he just hasn't been able to show any sort of consistency or idea of what he's doing uh in terms of um being a steward they can be removed but it's up to the fim to remove them there is all sorts of rumblings of this sort of internal power struggle between dawn and the fim um so it's going to be 
interesting to see it play out. It's not something, you know, we're not going to see, you know, Freddie Spencer sacked this weekend. Um, we might start to hear a few rumblings over the summer uh, that, you know, it, it's going to be a process which is going to take a lot of time. But there's a lot of people who would lose face if um, Freddie Spencer were to be removed. So I think it's going to be a very long and difficult process. Yeah, and I, from what we understand as well, the Friday Safety Commission with the riders will involve race direction. Hopefully there'll be some kind of clarity from that meeting. Uh, maybe we should try and prime one of the riders to ask them for more transparency as well. It'd be good if the uh, race direction could maps talk to the fans or talk to the media or explain some of the decisions that are being made. Uh, wishful thinking, perhaps. Um, now we're on to the part of the show, the final part of the show, guys, I know that you love so most. Dave, when I ask you for your pre-race predictions uh, for the French Grand Prix this weekend, please just try and stick to eight or nine riders maximum, OK? Um, a little bit less than half of the grid would be wonderful. Uh, of course, this is uh, done with a view towards people's MotoGP fantasy teams. Um, if you're not already playing with us, we know we're five rounds in, so you're going to be at something of a deficit in terms of the points totals. But if you are playing and you want to join our league, then look for Paddock Pass Podcast 2023 join us and uh, we're going to hope to give away some prizes at the end of the year we're still trying to negotiate on that one i'm currently ranked 120th in that league so i'm going to need to um pull my finger out and get some get some more points this weekend in Le Mans. but um my call is going to be more ktm success i think everyone's going to be asking you know is that rc16 really going to be the proven package this year so um my prediction for the grand prix will be jack binder um, you know, uh, just cover my bases there. Boo, and, you know, boo, it's, it's going to be Brad Miller. It's going to be Brad Miller. <laughs> um, but I'm also going to keep Alex Marquez in my team. Just a little nod towards his second place finish a couple of years ago on the Repsol Honda where he really pulled a result out of the bag. Uh, over to you, Neil. Who do you fancy? Uh, well, I, I do fancy the KTMs to be to be competitive this weekend, but uh, just on the base of what we saw at Jerez, I really do think we could uh, see Pekka Bonyaya go on a, a pretty um, a pretty crazy and formidable run uh, from now until the uh, the summer break that we're going to have. Um, just the the manner in which he he won at Jerez looked like um, the guy that is riding kind of at the peak of his powers. And I know he did have those two mishaps prior to Jerez, but the way he bounced back from that. And the manner in which he won, I thought, was just spectacular. Maybe one of his best performances um, in his career. Um, could have won last year at Le Mans. Obviously, made that uh, that balls up as soon as Bastianini passed him. Um, but yeah, I think uh, rain or shine currently. Um, yeah, Banyaya will take some beating this weekend. And yourself, Dave? I am uh, going to split it down the middle and say that uh, Pekka Benya is going to win the sprint race and uh, Brad Binder is going to win the Grand Prix. Um, I think, yeah, the, the, the Ducati and the um, uh, and the KTM are the best packages. It's going to be interesting to see because um, I think Aleish ended up on the podium last year. Uh, I mean, because in part uh, Pekka Benya crashed out. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see what what's... Uh, what the Aprilia can do, you know, it should be faster. It should be better. They should be a, a capable of, of of making a step forward. So, um, yeah, I, I I would agree. It's going to be a, it's going to be a, a KTM versus Ducati, and I think it's going to be Banyaya Saturday and uh, Binder Sunday. Okay, Stephanie, 
thanks once more to Rental Street and go and look at the website now. Send us some questions or give us some feedback on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod or through Patreon and simply leave a, a comment on the SoundCloud page if you want. Let us know. Uh, Neil, Dave and I, maybe with a couple of guests, we'll see. We'll be back with the Paddock Pass Podcast Note Show from Thursday in Le Mans. of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by the Libertines. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.